Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm excited to welcome to the studio today a writer who recently contributed to the hit Netflix series, A Series of Unfortunate Events. He also has a short film, Curmudgeon, which is tearing up the festival scene. And he's a truly wonderful person. Welcome to the show, Joshua Conkle. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah. Uh, So let's start the show off the same way I do every show. And it's with the same first question I ask every guest. And it's simply this. Why horror? What's your connection to it? What draws you in? Interpret however you want. But why horror? Well, I think when you're an effeminate man or or a little boy, I guess in my case, when I came into horror, um, there's a natural identification with women. You sort of um, can use women as an avatar for your femininity and your sensitivity. So there's that aspect to it. But I also think with horror, you get to do that, but you also get to use these survivor stories as your avatar for dealing with trauma in your own life. So for instance, for me as a little boy, a huge touchstone was the character Alice in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies because she was like me. I thought, you know, she was like really sensitive and quiet and kind of a dreamer. And that's what sort of made her beautiful and strong. And so she was like a huge avatar for me existing in the world as like an effeminate little boy. That's interesting. Alice was always a personal favorite of mine as well. When I was growing up, I always wanted to be her best friend. Yeah, me too. I love her. And I loved her brother, Ricky. He was so hot. Like the karate (laughs) scene. Uh, Part four, unspeak, like uh, part four, like in my mind, unquestionably has like the hottest array of like guys for the Nightmare franchise. Sure, because it's got Dan as well, who's so dreamy, right? Her boyfriend. Yeah, Dan's love interest. uh, Dan's a dreamboat. There's like fan art of Dan on Tumblr, which, you know, that's something for listeners to find on their own, but it's, (laughs) it's, it's, it's worth it. Uh, so I think that's interesting is, is, is using like the final girl as an avatar for your own kind of queerness before maybe you even have words for it. Yeah. And I I mean, I use women as my avatars anyway, you know, whenever I'm not writing something queer and I just want to write a story about quote unquote normal people, I write about women because that experience is weirdly closer to my experience than like a heterosexual dudes is. What do you think, and I've never actually asked a guest this, but why do you think gay men are drawn to women in that way? Well, again, I think think if you're an effeminate man existing in this world, your experience of life is probably a bit closer to a woman's than it is to a heterosexual man's, you know? Mm -hmm. Of course, gay men still have male privilege, um, but at the same time, your uh, way of walking through the world, if you're an effeminate man, puts you in danger in a way that I think um, makes queer men sort of uh, relate to or reach out to female characters. And there's also sort of um, a beautiful strength in a female character's courage and toughness that's not the same as like a, a male's toughness. Absolutely. You know, I think that's why uh, drag queens are so popular. They're like taking that courage and strength and femininity and like turning it up to 11. I would not disagree. I think that's just, that's a really interesting take. Now, because you said that you were drawn to these survivor women and we talked about Alice, were there any others that like really like spoke to you growing up that were your your ladies? Who, who are your girls? Uh, my girls are the friends from Halloween, of course, specifically Annie. 
I, I have this theory that everyone is either a Lori, a Linda, or an Annie, and I'm right. definitely an Annie. Um, I was a Lori as a little boy. Like, I think all innocent people are Lori's. Right. But I've grown into my Annie-dom. Um, so I love those girls. I love Amy Steele in Friday the 13th Part 2, just because she's a bit smarter than most final girls and, a, and, frankly, a better actress than a lot of them were. And um, just feels like a character that's alive in the world of that film. Right. In a way that, you know, a lot of these horror movies, especially from the 80s when slasher films were so popular, even the ones that I love, they have characters that are just kind of throwaway characters or like meat for the for the 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 pile. And Amy Steele plays a character that feels alive and, and real in the world. So. I really liked her a lot, too. She's definitely a fully realized character. And I think that, you know, especially during the 80s where they were cranking out slasher movies so frequently, it was easy to fall into tropes. So yeah. when you have someone like a Ginny who yeah. stands out, there's there's a power to that character. Uh, she's so great in April Fool's Day as well. I mean, she's she's a really great actress. She is. I really love April Fool's Day. My favorite thing about April Fool's Day, though, is at the end when it's, you know, the the surprise is revealed. I don't want to spoil it for yeah. for anyone who has never seen it. But like she so kind of quickly just accepts it whereas I would be like enraged. Out. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like my favorite scene at, at the end of the movie because Amy Steele's like transitional moment where she's just like okay and I'm yeah. like no. No, not okay. Uh Do you remember this movie that she did with um what's that comedian's name? Howie Mandel where he played like a wolf boy? Like he played somebody who was raised by wolves and she was his caretaker. No. God, I wish I could remember the name of it. It's so preposterous. I have homework after the show, apparently, because yeah. I love Amy Steele. Uh, one of my favorite uh, ep- things that she ever did was an episode of Millennium. Oh, my God. Yeah, she plays like a, th- a therapist that I think talks to Lance Henriksen. It's amazing. Weird. Uh I do think that on Twitter, if I recall around Halloween, you maybe instigated, are you an Annie, a Lori? Yeah. Or a, yeah, I remember that. I felt like I was a Ben Tramer, though, because I always, <laughs> I'm always late to show up to everything. <laughs> so being obsessed with horror, obviously, you know, we're talking about the, the characters you identified with, the people that you liked and uh, you, you sought out in, 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 the media, in the genre. At what point did you go from a fan to realizing this was something that maybe you wanted to do? do in, in is, is work like is writing and telling yeah. stories uh well you know i came up through playwriting so i was in new york working in theater um and so I, I, genre is very much discouraged in the world of theater theater is very classist elitist you know most of the people who are my peers are people who've gone to yale and harvard and these sorts of places so it's very like fancy schmancy and genre is really discouraged and so when i was writing plays in new york i always tried to incorporate genre and specifically horror into my plays because i felt like i wanted to say a big fuck you to this stuffy theater institution mm-hmm. and so that was part of it i never when I was young, thought that I would make horror films. I thought that I would be a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright like Annie Baker, but like funnier, right? you know, <laughs> and like kitschier. Um, but that didn't quite work out the way that I thought it might. Why do you think uh, theater has a resistance to genre material? Because they have these subscriber bases of like um, older people who they depend on for their income. So they have to program pretty safely. That's changing. There are theaters that are doing really cool, really bold stuff. 
uh, but that's taken a long time. And certainly when I was coming up as a playwright, the trend was toward quiet naturalism, right? you know, which is not what I was interested in at all. I was interested in plays where um, a women's book club meeting was uh, attacked by insects from another dimension. Um, and you know, I want to go like, see that right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, it's funny, you know. But no, it's even true, even in musical theater, we're seeing a rise of a lot more uh, kind of Grand Guignol sort of, or adaptations of horror films. We'd be Evil Dead, Reanimator, right. uh, Toxic Avenger. They've all become musicals recently and successful. Yeah, I mean, I had a, an off-Broadway musical in 2013 called The House of Von Macrame, which had a cast of 15, and it was a horror musical, a horror synth musical set in the 80s. And the whole thing was on a fashion runway, and the show had all these built-in um, fashion shows. So there was a cast of 15, all synth music over like 150 costumes and like these incredible gore effects. And it was a huge commercial success. I mean, every show was sold out before we even opened because people were so thirsty for, um, this kind of theater experience, this immersive horror, campy, fun theater experience. The play's very much not good. We did not have <laughs> enough time to really pull it off, but God, people fucking flipped out for it. And so I think that theater is sort of realizing now that people do want this kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, though we know each other, I just learned about this play that you were, that you're talking about. And so I'm interested, uh, what were the challenges knowing that there's this sort of resistance to that material in the theater world and just even realizing that show, did you meet resistance trying to get it out there? Well, uh, I we self-produced it. I mean, that's the short answer. You know, you'll you can never make the mistake of thinking that a, an established theater like Manhattan Theater Club is going to do your synth goth <laughs> horror musical. You right. know, it's just like not going to happen. So we raised the money ourselves and did it ourselves. Um, that's that's the challenge is really knowing that you're going to have to do everything DIY. Right. And how long was the run? It was a month. That's. Good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a commercial play. It was at Bushwick Star in Brooklyn, which is like more of a pre- presenter. So it was only ever going to be a month. But yeah. Would you ever mount another production of it? Not in a million years. Not for <laughs> any amount of money. Was it just that difficult to put on? Yeah. I mean, that cast and those costumes. I mean, I still have a storage unit in Brooklyn with like 200 costumes from that show in it. So oh, wow. it's just it's too much. So from what point did you transition from wanting to work within the world of theater and working within the world of theater to film and TV? Well, I always had a day job in New York as well. So I had a whole different career in advertising. And um, I got lucky enough a few years ago to make this short film with Danny DeVito. He started as a play, an off-Broadway play. He came and saw it. Uh, his really close friend, David Margulies, who's now passed away, was the star of the play and is the star of the film version of it as well. Um, so Danny saw this play and decided to approach me and ask me if I wanted to make a short film of it. And, and I, of course, I jumped at it. And so Danny um, and David Margulies and I did uh, adapt it into a short film, which is Curmudgeons. Um, and that's been making the film festival circuit, starting with Tribeca and um, winning a lot of awards. And so it's really changed my life. Um, And when I was in New York and Danny and I were doing press together, I mean, we were in his private Escalade driving around Manhattan and doing press. And I was like, shit, this is what I'm meant to be doing, not working in an office. So um, from that, I was really um, lucky to get managers in LA. And then, and that's how I got the job on um, a series of unfortunate events on, on Netflix. It's all thanks to Danny DeVito and a fluke of a 
you know, experience. Well, I, ha- I have to ask then, since you mentioned Danny DeVito in this sort of serendipitous moment, uh, are you, he directed it, right? Yeah, he directed it and starred in it. Do you have a favorite Danny DeVito film that he directed? Uh, probably War of the Roses. Oh, my favorite too. God, he's so he's a really good director. He is, and people don't know what a and people don't remember what a killer producer he is. I mean, he produced Pulp Fiction for God's sake. That's right. You know, and he's he's incredible. War of the Roses is one of those movies that I always uh, say that you should show it to someone on a first date. Yeah, because if they can hang through that movie, then and get the humor of why you're showing it yeah. to them on a date, then they're definitely. Cool. Yeah. He's a big horror fan too. Actually, he used to make. He's made probably like twenty short horror films that no one's ever seen with his family. He called it Blood Factory. Oh wow! And so um, I've seen a couple of them, but uh, he's always been trying to think of something to do with it. I mean, they're like throwaway things that they did on a Saturday afternoon, but some of them are really funny and have like pretty impressive people in them. You know. Um, so. Well, I suppose when you're Danny DeVito, you can call in some favors. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, so. Curmudgeons has been playing around the film festival circuit. Yeah. What's the experience been traveling around with the film and seeing it? I've always, uh, you know, I've always dreamed of doing something like this, if not specifically this. So to travel to like, you know, to be on the red carpet at the Tribeca Film Festival is a big deal for me. Um, And, you know, for Danny, it's like a normal thing. But for me, it very much was not a normal thing. And it felt really special. And what if would a dream come true in a way that you make a play you write a play yeah and someone comes to see it and it becomes a film and that's there just had to be like a magical moment yeah yeah and even being on set uh, you know i thought that it was going to be like one guy with a dslr and then <laughs> i show up on set and of course danny devito like you said is called in favors so we had the cinematographer from one of the james bond movies and the guy who wrote our score wrote the score for eternal sunshine on the spotless mind i mean it was pretty top notch. I have no idea how much money they spent, but I'm guessing that it was a lot. Um, <laughs> so I feel really lucky. And it's still playing now festivals, yeah, right? It's still doing the festivals. Now it's doing mostly the LGBT festivals, which is really great. I just went to the Dayton LGBT film festival, which Dayton's a really cute, cool town and no one ever tells you that, but it is. Um, so now it's mostly doing that and you can also see it on Vimeo. And since it's playing LGBT films, and we talked about how there was a queer connection to horror for you growing up by using the, the final girls as avatars and, and, and relating to that otherness. Uh, I want to talk a little bit, as I do with a lot of guests, about representation in film. Um, how important is it to you as a writer, both as a playwright and a screenwriter, to include representation, if, if at all? It's very important. It's, I guess now that I'm a bit older and more comfortable in my body and in my life, it's become less important to me. But if I put myself in the shoes of me at 12, you know, I remember the character Ricky from my so-called life and how um, important that was to me because I had never seen a gay man on television before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important. And, and even some of the problematic representation I'll still take. I mean, when I was a teenager or a a young man, there would always be, there started to be these like sort of sassy gay best friend characters. And those are terrible, but I still, I'm like, I'll take it because it's all you can have really at that time. It's true. I remember, um, the first gay person that I saw on TV, TV or film and I know that, like, you know, for, I think it's a question that you don't get to ask people very often, but I think we all remember it because it's like a significant moment. Like, oh, that's 
me, kind of, because yeah. sometimes it's not necessarily like you. But I had rented uh, Velvet Goldmine because mm. I love David Bowie. Yeah, of course. And um, and then the movie just like because it's Todd Haynes was just like so like queer and in your face, but also sort of like not necessarily the best portrait of it. Yeah, and, like it, it like it enthralled me and like you know seduced me. But I was like also like oh my god, what am I in for? Right. Uh, but it is important because for people who are growing up out there who have no point of reference in in their small towns to see that it's just like it's assurance to know that there's a world beyond yeah now i think people are sort of spoiled for it almost i mean not really but like think of when that show looking was on the air and how people dissected it and uh scrutinized it from every angle and whether it represented our community or didn't and right and who it represented and, and i just like 10 years earlier we would have just been our minds would have been blown that it even existed and when it came around it was sort of like oh i don't know about this part or this character you know we we had the sort of opportunity or the privilege of dissecting it rather than just like sucking it all up and being ecstatic that it even existed which is weird that that was the reaction and i've always felt that because you know, although it's more accepted in media and and art now, it's still not the norm. To yeah. have like a completely queer oriented show is not something that happens very frequently. No. So that art community got up in arms about minutia instead of just, you know, celebrating the fact. And I, I think to some degree it was celebrated in that way. But you're right. It's as opposed to like when Queer as Folk premiered on Showtime, right. as opposed to a decade a decade later when Looking came out. The reactions were totally different. Absolutely different. And um, I don't know. I think about this guy Jonathan McNeil who runs the Dayton LGBT Film Festival, and he and I were doing press there together. And he said one thing that was interesting is that in years previous, one question he always got from the press is why an LGBT film festival. And now, post Donald Trump, he hasn't gotten that question at all. Mm-hmm. And that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, it does feel like the world has gotten scarier and darker almost overnight for any minority group, I presume, but certainly ours. Um, so I think it's more important than ever or more important than it has been for a really long time in any case to have LGBT specific stories and spaces. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, of course we all would like to live in a world where we don't need to have specific film festivals and that everyone was under the banner of just film festival. Yeah. But, um, that's not the case. And until it is, we need them and it's so important. Uh, but from film festivals and your film traveling around and, and the attention it brought you, as you mentioned, it led you to a series of unfortunate events. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. Cause that show is, uh, it become a cult success for Netflix. Yeah. Uh, did you read the books? No, I'm too old for them. So I read them in preparation to get the job. Um, but as soon as I started them, I was like, oh, these are really cool and gothy and ironic. And if I had been 10 when they came out, I would have been all over them. Um, they're right up my alley. What I like about it is that although I'm sure not everyone would agree, uh, it is horror. There's a horror to it. Like the whole world that those kids exist in is this sort of like high goth, um, like dark shadows, hammer house of horror sort of. Um, and in a way it's a, it's a primer for a generation of kids to get into like a goth sensibility. Totally. 
Um, it's funny too, as the show was about to come out, I was you know looking at Twitter and things like this and looking at all the young fans who had grown up with the books and what they were thinking about the trailers and stuff. And a lot of them said that they were worried that the show would make Count Olaf funny and not scary. But the thing is that... Um, or, you know, that the, the series would be, like, too funny and, and not frightening and serious enough. But right. the thing is that those books aren't really frightening or serious. It's just that those people who are adults now remember that experience of being scared by them because they were children. But actually, if they went back and reread them, they would see that they're um, funny. Right. And it's kind of just like nihilist humor for kids. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the whole point of it is that, I mean, the lesson to be learned from the book series is that life is shitty and unfair and dark. And the only thing that you can do is persevere, which is like us, like a total final girl narrative. It really is. Um, created by a fictitious man. Yeah. Which even, <laughs> even speaks to, uh, kind of the further narrative that he sows in that uh, the world itself is an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Because there is no Lemony Snicket. Totally, yeah. We want there to be. Or maybe we don't. <laughs> I mean, Daniel Handler's not too far from <laughs> Lemony Snicket. Uh, and in the course of you you wrote um, episodes for seasons two and three. Yeah, so and- in season two I adapted the book Hostile Hospital, um, which has a two episode arc in the second season. That's super fun because that's one of the books that the fans of the series are like, that's the really fucked up one. Um, it's in a decrepit old hospital. Right. And the kids are disguised as doctors. And um, there's a character named Esme Squalor, who's a who's a villainess who has high heeled shoes with knives for heels that she's trying to kill the kids with. Oh, delicious. It's so amazing. And um, <laughs> Count Olaf kind of maneuvers it so that he almost gets Klaus to saw off his sister's head in an operating theater in front of an audience and so um and also our um our art director is Bo Welch who did all the classic Tim Burton movies so his um the whole aesthetic for hostile hospital is mid uh, mid-century soviet so all the lights are always flickering and the hospital's mm. only half built and there's all these rusty tools and so I got to do a lot of really fun horror stuff. There's some references to The Shining. I snuck in a reference to um, My Bloody Valentine. I snuck in a reference to uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Um, so it's going to be really, really fun and cool. And I think people will like it. Well, and hospitals are just prime locations for... Yeah, uh, who's not afraid horror. of the hospital? And how many great horror films have been set in hospitals? Yeah. Halloween 2. Halloween 2 is so good. And people kind of don't remember that, I think. Because people, they're like season of the witch people. Yeah, um, and I love season of the witch. I, I don't, I don't care about that it's one. It's fine. <laughs> um, but I love how, and of course, I love Halloween, and I love Halloween too because it's so. I mean, it's like the same night. It's so exciting. No one does that, you know. And no. It's filmed all those years later too, and Jamie Lee Curtis has that fakakta wig on the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I, I always say that you know that there were no gays on set of yeah. Halloween 2 because like no 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 one clocked that lace front yeah they were like what is going on with this hair <laughs> um what I like is the one-two punch of Halloween and Halloween 2 when you really just sit and look at them uh as a whole piece and yeah. you realize what a terrible doctor Loomis is he's awful. he's like literally the worst you know because he just like there's this through line where he's like well I tried a little bit but it didn't work I'm like that's yeah. not how like psychiatric medicine works right. at all and then he's like maybe I'll just shoot my patient instead right. uh, uh no Halloween 2 is great and I think it's one of those uh and I immediately think of it when I think of hospital horror I think of visiting hours and movies like that uh, yeah. and um 
it's it's kind of a, a minor obsession, I think, with horror filmmakers. Don Mancini loves the idea of hospital horror, and that's yeah. why Cult of Chucky is set uh, in a mental and institution. And Nightmare on Street Three, which that's is right. my other favorite, is so good. That's in a. I mean, it's a sort of a mental hospital, but still. Now, are you allowed to say what other uh, book you adapt, adapted for season three or no? Yeah, season three I adapted Grim Grotto, which is uh, the sort of uh, gothy submarine narrative with uh, sea monsters and uh, cool stuff like that. I love a good sea monster. Yeah. Now, because you were older when these books came out uh, and discovered them working on the show, I have to ask, were there books that you liked growing up that were in the genre vein that were maybe spooky? Oh, sure. I mean, I loved Roald Dahl. Um, I was obsessed with The Witches, both the book and the movie. Um, Angelica Houston is like such a icon to me from that movie. Right. Um, and I loved R.L. Stein and Fear Street. And when I met Daniel Handler, who's Lemony Snicket, one of the first things that we talked about was R.L. Stein because they're buddies from like the circuit. And I just had a shitload of questions for him about R.L. Stein. R.L. Stein is such a fascinating figure. He comes up a lot on the show. And I think it's mostly because there was a whole generation that was just sort of influenced by... Not yeah. just Goosebumps, but Fear Street too. Yeah, I was a Fear Street person. I was like actually a little bit too old for Goosebumps, so I was all about Fear Street. Well, Fear Street, in a way, feels like it embodied that 80s horror aesthetic in a way that we don't talk about because we often think about movies. Yeah. But when I think of Fear Street, I think of that like cover art totally. that was very specific, you know, where it's like a cheerleader that's painted with like half her face as a skull, skull or something yeah. or the babysitter and there's like a hand like reaching in to answer the phone. And that sort of like laid the groundwork for the iconic imagery of horror of the 80s without us maybe even necessarily realizing it because when I see 80s nostalgia now yeah uh when with like the the poster for the babysitter the McG movie yeah that looks like a fear street novel it cover really does absolutely and there are things in stranger things that um you know everyone's like oh this is stephen king oh this is this and i'm like um, but it's also a little rl stein yeah totally so i think that that's kind of understated and a little celebratory uh and i can also see that um Roald Dahl to me feels like the foundation of which Lemony Snicket was born from. Totally. That and, and um, oh God, what's his name? Edward Gorey. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. the Ashley Crumb Tinies and things like that. Yeah. So uh, from there, we talked about horror that um, you read and Final Girls that inspired you. But like, what are some horror movies that you love? Well, you know, I grew up on sort of the slasher ones, starting with Nightmare on Elm Street and kind of moving on to Friday the 13th and some of the kind of ones that you would get on VHS for a slumber party like Sleepaway Camp or The Burning. So I love all of those movies. But as I've gotten older, I've developed a really deep appreciation for like the slower, artier, female centric ones. So Mm -hmm. I love um, uh, Rosemary's Baby. I love Let's Scare Jessica to Death. I love The Sentinel. I'm all about that kind of thing now um i love the sentinel god it's so good and um i love beverly d'angelo's like lesbian masturbating ballet character so good and it just is so unhinged yeah in a way that uh mrs griswold never will be (laughs) right (laughs) 
Uh, and speaking of unhinged, um, and I do want to keep talking about horror, but because it, this is the perfect opportunity to bring it up, I happen to know that you're a fan of one of the most unhinged films to ever be committed to celluloid. It's a 70s musical called The Apple. Yes, The Apple. I love it so much. Actually, I collect records, and the soundtrack to The Apple is the most expensive record that I own, which is so funny because it's truly awful. <laughs> but I guess it's rare because they gave them out as... Uh, you know, the film was never released into movie theaters because it was so terrible. And the couple of screenings it did have, they gave out the album soundtrack um, as a promotional like giveaway. And the audience used the records to destroy the movie screen. They literally threw the records at the screen until the screen was shredded. Oh, my God. Um, although the screening that like you wish you were at. I know, one God. Of those- when uh, now for listeners who don't know, the Apple is a. How would you describe it? So the Apple came out in uh, 1980, and it's an Israel-produced uh, German-American movie uh, made by Canon Films, who made all sorts of garbage. Um, and it's set in the far-flung future of 1994. That's right. Yeah. When a record label. Uh, called Buglo Industries owns the government basically um, and everyone is forced to wear these they call them BIM marks on their forehead and it, it has all these weird Bible parallels that don't really work out and the music is just dreadful and it's amazing and hysterical and I recommend it if you haven't seen it you should watch it right now and it stars Catherine Mary Stewart who uh, is also the star of Night, Night of, of the, the Comet. Comet another great 80s one so there's definitely a genre crossover there well, and I guess, you know, in the way there are horror elements to the Apple when the devil shows up. And yeah. I mean, the devil as a music executive is kind of like Faustian, I guess. Um, it would be a good double feature with Phantom of the Paradise, I think. Yeah, it would. Yeah. Phantom of the Paradise is much better. And it's got um, Jessica Harper in it, whose voice is like velvet. Um, but yeah. I agree. Um, well, I, well, Phantom of the Paradise directed by Brian De Palma. I mean, uh, right. With, I think, art direction by Sissy Spacek. It's what, like a, a hidden... Is that true? That's true. Holy cow. Yeah. God, she, Carrie, that's another one. I loved Carrie so much as a little boy. Well, that makes sense, too, because that yeah. brings it full circle to the idea of, of a female protagonist, especially Carrie more than most, because yeah. she is beleaguered. And... Um, you're rooting for Carrie the whole time, including the scene where she kills everybody. You're like, go, Carrie. Yeah. Those kids deserve to die. I think if there's a through line on Dead for Filth, I'm starting to realize almost every episode in some capacity Carrie is mentioned yeah. by every guest and everyone comes from diverse walks of life but I think that maybe Carrie is the unspoken queer icon that we never realized until like we got a bunch of queer artists together I to think talk that's about that's probably it. true yeah so uh, you know thank you Carrie White yeah R.I.P. yeah <laughs> Uh, so speaking of the Apple and Canon films and uh, kind of that compulsion for the so bad it's good, yeah. what do you think is it that takes something like the Apple that is unquestionably a mess right. and makes it so delicious? Like what, what is that compulsion, especially for an era of cult fans that are drawn to that sort of material? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just the... Um the attempt to make something, you know, that's a, that movie is an earnest attempt. It's not like, um, Mars attacks or something like that. That's trying to be campy. That Mm -hmm. movie is trying really hard to be a good musical and failing really hard. And so there's sort of, um, a duality of 
<laughs> recognizing that something is really terrible, but also rooting for it a little bit. Right. Like you're rooting for the apple and the fact that it's failing so badly just makes you like it more. It, it sort of is charming and, and it's it's a charming disaster, I guess you'd say. And I think it speaks to the idea that you can't make a cult film. Yeah. It's and especially now with nostalgia culture, and we mentioned it a little bit earlier. There seems to be this thing where people look back and they're like, "Well, this was a, has a cult prestige, or this has nostalgia prestige, so we're just going to do that." Yeah. But you can't you can't make something nostalgic. You can't make something cult. And I think it is the earnest attempt. Yeah. I mean, think about Showgirls. I mean, recently Elizabeth Berkeley was at that Hollywood Forever screening of Showgirls and she'd been... I was there. You were. Yeah. Maybe it was you that was telling me about it. I mean, she's distanced herself from that movie for years and now she's kind of learned to embrace it. And I think the reason is that she recognizes that the fans of that don't love it because they're mean people who enjoy making fun of it. They, They love it because it's a failure, sure, but they've you know, we've all failed in our mm-hmm. lives. And so there's sort of a, it's, it's genuine love. It's not, you don't love a bad movie because it's terrible and you're mean and you like to make fun of it. Yeah. You love it because it's, it's a failure that you like anyway, and you've failed. And so you feel a connection to those artists, you know? No, I think that's a hundred percent it. And I, showgirls for me, and I always say this, that it's in my top five favorite movies of all time. Yeah. And I, I say that without irony. I think it's, it's wonderful and it's strange and it's magnificent. Uh, and I really earnestly love her in that movie. Yeah. And I think that what, she has been made to realize in recent years because I know there was a lot thrown at her and a lot of negativity put on her because of the movie in right. a way that none of the, the men attached to it ever got. Of course. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin's fine. Yeah, he's doing great. Uh, but there's also a whole generation of people who admired Nomi Malone because she just didn't back down yeah and yeah maybe she's like manic and crazy <laughs> but it's it's in a way that's the that's the the queer avatar right yeah we see this girl this woman who comes in this goddess who enters <laughs> the room and is like no i won't i will not and like yeah. And yeah you know it's extreme she's acting out in ways that we were never able to yeah and those uh, sex scenes are so gross though that pool sex scene ugh. well it's so think painful it, it's unsanitary to have the, <laughs> you know, like because then i think to myself like do you have is the drain catching all yeah, that or yeah. like I don't want to get too X-rated. I don't. I always loved the Rocky Horror Picture Show as a kid, and it really bothered me when people would refer to that as something that was so bad that it's good. Because I actually think that the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a legitimately good movie that's successful on its own terms. It knows exactly what it's doing and it does it well. And it's not it's not a bad movie at all. It's it's a great movie. Well, I think in the same way that Elizabeth Berkley commits to Nomi Malone, Tim Curry unquestionably commits to Frankenfurter. And it's one of those movies that um, if you see many, many times where you go to the theater and have that whole experience, it, it kind of becomes like rote. Yeah. But then I always tell people, take some time off and then like go and see it again. Yeah. Because there's a moment where Rocky Horror is like one of those movies where you've seen it so many times. If you take a break and go see it, it's like seeing it for the first time. And I had a revelation. I saw it recently at the new art about a year ago because I hadn't gone in so long. His performance is so it's transcendent. Good. He's brilliant. I mean, look at it. It's sort of the new it is kind of the opposite of the old one. The old one's a bad movie that he's incredible in. And the new one is a good movie that, uh, you know, could really use a performance like Tim Curry's, frankly. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with Skarsgård. He's fine. He's right. just not Tim Curry, who's 
absolutely terrifying in a movie that's like not very good. Often people point at these performances as camp, but I don't think they're camp. I think they're... Uh, no, his performance is not campy at all, Tim Curry's. It's terrifying. And it's terrifying, and it's taking the character to the conclusion that a character like that would be. Yeah. And I think camp is also one of those things that people unfold uh, unfairly and mistakenly attempt to evoke. I think camp is something that doesn't happen uh, often organically. Like, it has to happen organically in a yeah. way. There are very few filmmakers who can purposely set out to make camp. Yeah, John Waters. I was going to say, John Waters maybe is the only one who does it truly yeah. well. Tim Tim Burton gets it right a lot of the time, especially in his olden movies. I mean, I think that there's, I think about this a lot as an artist and just as a fan of things. Mm -hmm. People have this idea that something can't be ironic and sincere at the same time. Right. And I find that really problematic because I can think of countless examples of things that do both a series of unfortunate events among them is yes. incredibly sincere and also ironic and campy hairspray, uh, Edward Scissorhands. I mean, you could just think of like a hundred different examples of that. Hairspray is a beautiful movie. Oh, it's so heartwarming and just genuine. And it's a, it's a great movie. It really is. And of course we're talking about the original hairspray. Yes. Yeah. Not no no shade to any uh, subsequent remakes that came. I do love uh, a big singing and dancing spectacular. Yeah, but I love Good Morning Baltimore. Me too. Yeah. Uh, oh, Tracy. Uh, speaking of Baltimore. Yeah. You were just there. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your trip to Baltimore, because I know while you were there, you worked with LGBTQ youth. Yeah, not just youth either. It, it ended up being a, a broader spectrum than that. So uh, this theater company in Baltimore called Single Carrot has commissioned me to adapt Peter Pan for the queer community in Baltimore. So I went out there for two weeks and I spent time with LGBTQ uh, street kids, with uh, trans people, uh, ended up talking to a group of um, elderly queer people, which was really interesting. Um, sex workers, LGBTQ people who are uh, benefiting from like uh, health and safety government programs. Um, so I really ended up getting the gamut. So I'm tasked with trying to like incorporate all of this into a version of Peter Pan that's queer friendly. And um, it's really interesting. And you're still working on that now. Yeah, so I have a first draft due in December. So I've just started writing it. And meeting with everyone, I assume that both gave perspective and, and changed perspective in some ways? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of interesting things that... Uh, I mean, you're very aware that you're a white, cisgender person of economic privilege when you're in these rooms. Like, for instance, there are a lot of people um, I would meet who... I would identify as male just on site. They would have uh, beards and deep voices. and um, But these women identified as trans. And the thing is that um, because they were living on the street, they couldn't, even though they were trans women, they couldn't present as women. Mm -hmm. And that sort of is an obvious thing that, that I just never would have thought of in a million years because I'm so privileged. And it just really hurt. And there were a lot of stories like that of people in these communities that... Um, Frankly, I think white gay men kind of forget about, yeah. you know, once we got marriage equality, it was like, bye, you're on your own. Good luck. And so it was a reminder that um, there are people in our communities who don't have it as easy as we do. And um, yeah, it was pretty eye opening. 
No, and I think you're right about the marriage equality thing, and we've talked about this with other guests, and it's something I think about a lot, is that I think that sometimes the cis white gay community forgets why we have pride events. Right, yeah. Uh, it becomes a very... Um, we're going to go, you know, it's sponsored pride sponsored by absolute vodka and yeah. we're going to like have floats and boys in short shorts. I'm like, that's not why we're here. Right. I mean, it's okay to celebrate and have a cocktail. Sure. But we have a fight and it's still a fight. Yeah. And it's for the same reasons that you mentioned uh, about why no one's asking why we have LGBT film festivals anymore. It's because we're still fighting. Yeah. And then the most people that I talked to in Baltimore were people of color too. And so we talked a lot about a about which spaces people feel safe in or excluded from. And more often than not, uh, a lot of these uh, younger people especially would say that the places they felt the least safe were um, white spaces, like sort of queerness aside. Right. They had a lot to say about, um, you know, gay male white spaces and how unfriendly those were. And I, I that was a little bit hard to hear because I'm a part of that. You know, you, right. you don't get to be one of the good ones quote-unquote good ones right you know um you have to take responsibility for for your the, the privilege that you get from living in the world and it's important to have those hard conversations yeah to help others yeah but the production will be really fun like i'm thinking a lot about how the mermaids don't have vaginas and how they can never dry hump and things like that <laughs> you know, like. um so i guess i, I probably should ask this production that you're writing is is specifically for these individuals so it'll be half professional actors and half people from these communities but it's it's meant to be sort of inspired from them and for them excellent i like that yeah it's really cool and when does that open that'll open in the spring of 2018 all right so baltimore listeners you know what you have to do uh john i know you're listening (laughs) um so beyond peter pan what else are you working on right now that you can tell us about? So I just finished a horror feature that I'm really excited about. Yay. And it's called Cold Spell. And it's about a woman who has lost her father and her job in quick succession and also has a drinking problem. And so during a blizzard, she holes herself up in her Brooklyn apartment and decides to just drink herself stupid. And she's going through her dad's old stuff, his like Mets cap and his records and his old VHS camcorder and all these things that he that she's inherited from him post his death. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a horrible blizzard outside. And while she's blackout drunk, this force comes into her apartment and starts messing with her. So um, I've just finished that and I'm going to go out to producers with that and maybe someone will buy it. Um, That'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll see. So now also investors, if you're listening, <laughs> yeah. John, no, that's yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, I can't wait to see. Thanks. Um, what have you been watching lately? What's inspiring you? I watched Stranger Things with everyone else, which I enjoyed very much. Um, I just watched Gerald's Game and I loved that. Wasn't it amazing? It's amazing. God, it scared the shit out of me. And it felt like a play in a really good way. Um, uh, Carla Gugino is an icon. Yeah, she's incredible and a really nice person. I know her a little bit because she lives next door to Lucy DeVito in New York. Um, and so she, she's been over there a couple of times and is really lovely. Oh, that's great. She's one of my favorite people I share a birthday with. Mm. Uh, when is Jane Fonda? Oh, that's good. I mean, yeah. how can you not? Yeah, right. 
Uh, no, Gerald's game I thought was really remarkable. Uh, I think we're having this really great Stephen King renaissance right it's now. It's true, in yeah. Film. And It was so great. And um, yeah. Did you see 1922? No, not yet. It's pretty good. I enjoyed it. Thomas Jane gives a very uh, off-the-chain performance. And another Netflix turning it out with The King. Yeah. Maybe we'll get more next year, too. What if there's going to be, a, like, when will it be, a, like, a Langoliers remake? <laughs> like a Tommy <laughs> Knockers remake? Um, <laughs> Maybe never? I think that Tommy Knockers would do well with a big budget remake. Yeah. Because uh, I know that Tommy Knockers itself was inspired um, by the Quatermass experiment, and you can see it like all over. I the, think Tommy uh, Knockers was inspired by cocaine. I mean, let's be honest. Well, I mean, like you're also referring to like half the '80s That's in that true. case. Yeah. Um, you don't get you don't get a Xanadu <laughs> without a little coke. Uh, but. Okay, cool. Great, great, great suggestions. Uh, and uh, so I have to ask, I always like to, to throw some fun questions out. We talked about Final Girls, and I've always been obsessed with the idea of a movie later for the, for the ladies who survived uh, to come back. And like, what if there was a, a, a non-horror film where the survivors of, of horror franchises, I don't know, Thelma and Louise did across the de- desert in a car. Right. Who do you put in that car? Like two of them together? Well, if it's a van, there can be four. You can do whatever you want. This, this is your vehicle oh, that God. you get to fill. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So, um... Uh, Nancy, mm-hmm. I guess she's not a survivor though, because she dies in um, three. Well, you know, we can we can let it go. Let's say let's say uh, let's get rid of her. She's dead. Okay. Um, let's say Alice from Nightmare on Elm Street's four and five. All right. Uh, I definitely put. Uh, oh, Sydney from the Scream movies. Great. She's probably driving. Got yeah, it. she's probably driving. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Amy Steele from Friday the Thirteenth two, and one more. Let me think of a good one. Um, this is a little off. What, what about Angela from Sleepaway Camp? Oh, I love Angela. Me too. Um, are you a fan of the Sleepaway Camp sequels? No, not at all. <laughs> I only like the first one. Uh, I find them sort of mean and ugly in well, a way that's like not fun. I think they're vicious. They're vicious yeah. movies. And that was very popular for a moment in time, I think, in the 80s, where there were a lot of mean movies. Yeah, in the early 2000s. I mean, there's a whole decade where I drop out of horror fandom, and it's like right. the early 2000s when like the Saw host, um, hostile kind of stuff was happening. I just completely dropped out. Right. No shade to those movies. I just don't like them. No, no, it's fair. Well, I think, too, it's, it's that extreme gore that I find um, when people don't, claim they don't like horror movies that's the image that they have yeah when in fact there's like a whole swath of different kinds of right. uh films within the genre uh what's the turning point away from those that that brought you back in was there a movie that when you took your vacation that you were like this is it i'm back uh the descent was like a little blip of like oh maybe they're coming back around but then there started to be like this slew of sort of more moody films that were doing well and the one that comes to mind is house of the devil house of the Devil's i great. loved so much i felt like it was made for me you know mm-hmm. and there started to be more movies like that it follows uh the guest you're next all of these movies that could have a bit of violence in them but were more um celebrating a vibe or a mood um and that's when i started to really really come back a lot i think the guest is an underrated masterpiece it's Dan I, stevens is so dreamy oh yeah i mean that scene where he comes out of the shower yeah uh is one of the 30 greatest seconds committed to film yeah um, absolutely but also The Guest is a really wonderful movie. It's like if John Carpenter directed The Terminator. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Uh, where can people find you? 
You can follow me on Twitter. It's Joshua Conkle. Um, and you can go to my website, which is joshuaconkle.com. Excellent. Well, Josh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.